Welcome back, everyone. According to a study by Janice Henderson Investors, in 2021, U.S. dividends totaled $522.7 billion. You heard that right. A little more than half a trillion dollars was distributed to shareholders in the form of dividend payments in 2021. Now, were you on the receiving end of this income distribution? And if so, what chunk of this money went directly into your pocket? Probably not much. I know my dividend income from that year certainly did not constitute a meaningful percentage. If these figures are accurate, I received 0.0000478% of this half a trillion dollars. Well, this figure isn't really a good representation of the total amount of dividends paid by US companies in 2021. If you look at the footnotes from the study, it states that only 506 of the largest US companies by market cap were analyzed. And we know there are thousands of US companies, and many of them pay a dividend. Granted, the largest payments are made by the largest companies. So perhaps if all US companies were analyzed, the figure would be $100 billion larger. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of the 506 companies that were analyzed, Microsoft topped the list as the largest dividend payer with a distribution of $17.3 billion. In a distant second place was AT&T and Exxon, both with $14.8 billion in dividends. And Apple was not too far behind with $14.4 billion. On the top 15 list, we also have JP Morgan Chase and Johnson & Johnson with $11 billion, Verizon and Chevron with $10 billion, then AbbVie at $9.2 billion, Pfizer at $8.7 billion, Procter & Gamble at $8.3 billion, Philip Morris at $7.6 billion, Coca-Cola at $7.2 billion, Home Depot at an even $7 billion, and Bank of America at $6.6 billion. So all very familiar names for any value dividend investor out there. But just because these companies pay out a large chunk of money in dividends, doesn't mean they are the best place to park your money if you want to build a dividend portfolio today. Reading this study got me thinking about this question. Where should I invest my money today to best grow my dividend income in the future? This is probably the biggest question dividend investors have on their minds. And the argument of high yield versus high growth is a never-ending debate on dividend forums. On the one hand, you have high dividend yield, which means a larger dividend income right away. This dividend income can then be reinvested back into these high-yielding stocks, and that will grow your income faster. Seems pretty simple, right? But what if the high yield won't be sustainable in the long run? Or when you do eventually start tapping into this dividend stream to fund your life, the growth won't keep up with inflation. Well, here is where the other side of the argument kicks in. For those investors that favor high dividend growth, With high dividend growth, you settle for a smaller dividend income today, with the hope that in 10 or 20 or 30 years, high dividend growth will grow this small dividend income into a sizable chunk of money. But what if the high dividend growth won't last for a decade or three? Or what if it turns out you'll need to tap into your dividend income sooner than you initially anticipated? And it turns out that you don't have enough time for the high growth strategy to work out? There's no simple answer to settle the high yield versus high growth debate. And we can look at individual examples that prove one favorable over the other. But the past isn't always indicative of the future. So the question comes down to opportunity cost. If I invest in stock A today, will I be better off than investing in stock B? And the opportunity cost is what you are giving up with the option you don't select. So if you invest in stock A, you miss out the opportunity to invest in stock B. And I know what you're thinking. You can always invest in stock A and stock B. But if you do that, you will miss the opportunity of solely investing in stock A or stock B, one of which will likely be a better option. Since we don't have a crystal ball to tell us what will happen tomorrow or 10 years from now, We are forced to use our best judgment to make decisions today. You should choose the option that feels most comfortable to you. And what I want to do today is share some analysis with you that may help you make this decision. 
As I was thinking about this high yield versus high growth decision, I decided to do what I do best, open a spreadsheet and crunch some data. I took all of the current dividend aristocrats and created a dividend forecast for each of them for the next 30 years. This isn't perfect science, and it is based on a bold assumption that each of these aristocrats can maintain its long-term dividend growth rate for a prolonged period of time. The likelihood of this actually happening is very small, but the individual results are not what I am most interested in from this data. I was more focused on finding trends that can help me decide if a higher dividend yield is better than a higher dividend growth rate. And if so, how does this data change over X number of years? And what if instead of focusing on yield versus growth individually is not the best route to take? And maybe if I look at the combination of the yield and growth rate together, it can make more sense. So let's jump right in and see what I found. Before we look at the trends, let me break down a few statistics on the current dividend aristocrats to show you what the playing field looks like. The average dividend yield for all dividend aristocrats right now is 2.44%, and it ranges from a low of 0.32% to a high of 7.12%. The largest subset of aristocrats actually fall into the mid-range dividend yield, right around 2-2.5%, with the distribution on the tail ends of the bell curve dropping significantly. The average dividend growth rate for all aristocrats is 6.5%, with the lowest growth rate being 1%, and the highest being 19.47%. The distribution of the growth rates is a little different than the distribution of the dividend yields. Nearly half of the aristocrats have a dividend growth rate below 6%, and only a handful are above 10%. If we combine the dividend yield with the dividend growth rate, by simply adding the two numbers together, which is dubbed the chowder number, after the gentleman who came up with this concept, we get a third element we can use to analyze the long-term dividend income trend. The average chowder number for all dividend aristocrats is 8.94%, with the lowest being 2.66%, and the highest 21.55%. Okay, so let's look at the results in terms of trying to replace our original investment in the form of total dividends paid. I used $50,000 in my example, but the results work with any amount you start with, since math is mutually exclusive. After 10 years, none of the aristocrats would have paid you $50,000 in dividend income. The highest amount received would be a little more than $41,000. But looking at the total dividends received from each of the aristocrats, the top half of the best income producers had an average starting dividend yield of 3.35%, compared to 1.52% for the bottom half. The top half also had an average dividend growth rate of 6.43% versus 6.58% for the bottom half. So clearly, a higher starting dividend yield was more favorable over a 10-year period of time. If we move out to 15 years, a total of 4 aristocrats would have paid you more dividend income than your original investment. Now the top half of the dividend income producers had an average starting dividend yield of 3.23% compared to 1.64% for the bottom half. The top half also had an average dividend growth rate of 7.37% versus 5.64% for the bottom half. So now we start to see a small shift from high yield to high growth. A high yield is still the more meaningful factor here, but a more attractive dividend growth rate is becoming more important. As we move out to a longer time frame of 20 years, the same trend continues. Now 24 aristocrats would have paid you more dividend income than your original investment, and 2 would have paid you back more than 3 times your original investment. The average dividend yield for the top half drops to 3.07%, with the dividend growth rate rising to 8.12%, while the bottom half had an average dividend yield of 1.8%, with a 4.89% dividend growth rate. After 25 years, 44 aristocrats would have paid you back more dividend income than your original investment, with 2 aristocrats paying you more than 9 times your investment. The top half and bottom half dividend yields continue to converge, while the average dividend growth rate trend continues to move further apart. What's interesting though, is that once you move out to 30 years and beyond, these trends start to slow down very quickly. The top half of the dividend income producers hover around an average dividend yield of about 2.7%, with an average dividend growth rate of around 9%. What is kind of cool though, is that only one dividend aristocrat has the chance to make you a dividend income millionaire after just 30 years, in this $50,000 original investment example. 
that Aristocrat is Lowe's, that has a dividend yield of 2.07%, but the fastest dividend growth rate of 19.47%. This analysis is rather simplistic, in the sense that I simply compared the top half of the income producers to the bottom half, and the data points to aiming for a higher starting dividend yield, but still placing some emphasis on dividend growth if your time frame is 15 years or shorter. If you're focused on the next 20 years, you should aim for a combination of aristocrats that would give you a dividend yield of 3% or more, with a 6.5 to 8% annual dividend growth rate. And if you have more time, you can give up some of the dividend yield in exchange for a better dividend growth rate. Let's look at this data through a more granular lens, to see if we can narrow in on a better dividend yield and growth combination. To do this, I created a pivot table that shows the average dividend income produced by each starting dividend yield, truncated to the nearest quarter percent. If we focus on the 10-year column, the data clearly points to higher dividend yields producing better results. If we look at the 20-year column, the data starts to balance out a bit, with dividend yields above 1.75% producing very similar results. There are a couple of outliers here, with lower dividend yields generating more favorable outcomes on a few occasions. And if we look at the 30-year column, the data gets pretty muddled, with the best results being scattered all over the place. What we can take away from this pivot table is that in the short run, the dividend yield is a good indicator of how much dividend income you can expect to receive. And as you move further out into the future, the starting dividend yield is not a good indicator of the outcome. I know this is also pretty common sense, but it doesn't hurt to visually see this pattern in a dataset. Here's another pivot table, this time for the average dividend growth rate, truncated to the nearest 1%. If we look at the 10-year column, the outcomes are very muddled, with no single dividend growth rate being a good indicator of how much dividend income you would receive. If we look at the 20-year column, a pattern begins to form, with higher dividend growth rates starting to produce superior results. But there are still plenty of outliers that don't fit the pattern. And if we look at the 30-year column, the pattern is further solidified, with higher dividend growth rates achieving superior results. So if the dividend yield is a good indicator of short-term results, and the dividend growth rate is a good indicator of long-term results, then perhaps the chowder number will be a more optimal factor to use for all time periods. And it is, to an extent. It isn't really ideal for the 10-year period, but in my opinion, it is a more favorable indicator for the 20- and 30-year time periods than the dividend yield and dividend growth rate alone. From this data set, it looks like a chowder number of 8 or better is generally a pretty good indicator of good long-term results. There are still a handful of outliers in the data, and while using a chowder number as a tool to select individual stocks won't be perfect all of the time, it can be a good place to start. The best route to take is to select a combination of both high and low yielding stocks with varying dividend growth rates, but make sure the low yielding stocks have high dividend growth rates. In the end, you shouldn't base your investing decision on just the dividend yield or dividend growth rate, or even a combination of the two. And just because the dividend aristocrats are on this elite dividend list doesn't mean they are safe investments. Many dividend aristocrats have come and gone in the past, and I'm sure a few years from today, a few of these names will drop off, and a few new names will join the list. This is why it's very important that you perform your own due diligence before you invest in any individual stock. You want to be sure you're making a good decision, and investing in a business that will be around, and ideally continue to grow well into the future, 